when I'm listening to podcasts, sometimes I'll listen to podcasts rather than read a book, but I'll then sometimes find myself straying into, I'm just going to check something, check um, that text that pinged through or whatever. And then you realize, I just didn't listen to the last five minutes of that podcast. It was kind of a nice sort of calming sound in the background, but I couldn't tell you what they just said. And then I find myself having to go back and rewind. And, and I think that's a skill we're losing by mm. not practicing it. Welcome to the Digital Habit Lab from Mind Over Tech, a place where we explore our relationship with technology. I'm your host, Menka Sangvi. In each episode, I'll be joined by guests from different walks of life as we observe how we use tech, reflect on how it sometimes uses us, and experiment with ways to make sure it is actually helping us to do what we value most in life. Each season of our podcast focuses on a theme, and this one is about intention. We're asking questions like, what is intention? What does it feel like to be intentional? And why is it so important to the way we use technology? In today's episode, we speak to filmmaker Liz Smith. Her most recent film, I Am Gen Z, is an absolutely fascinating journey into how young people are using technology today. Liz fundamentally is interested in what makes humans tick. She runs the project What's Going On In Your Head, which is a series of live events that uses the power of performance art to explore mental health. Our conversation today is pretty wide-ranging, from Liz's love of her Peloton bike to her growing privacy concerns and her theory about why young people don't seem to be worried about privacy too much. We also talk about the shared phenomenon of information snacking and how it's making it harder for most of us to think deeply. And of course, what we always focus on in this podcast, we get practical and creative in thinking about how to respond to these challenges. I forgot to press record at the beginning of that. So I'm sort of asking you the same question in a different way now. (laughs) So first of all, welcome. I'm going to start off with a few quick fire questions. The first one is, when I say the word intention, does it bring up any kind of image for you? The word intention doesn't bring up an image. It brings up a question mark. Why? Hmm, That makes sense. Like, Why are you using this right now in the way that you are? picking up the phone or logging on why am i using this why am i thinking about this right now why am why am i reacting like this why am i responding like this yeah yeah makes sense how would you describe in one word your relationship with technology mixed what's your favorite bit of tech at the moment like something that makes your life more enjoyable more efficient I really like my Peloton bike. That saved me during lockdown. Mm. And uh, it's something which has got a screen, yes. We're trying to get away from screens, but yet it's something, another screen I bought into my house. But I feel like it's been a positive screen in my life because it connected me, obviously, with the trainers and at the same time, I was able to do exercise and listen to music. When I'm getting, if I'm really get frustrated or worked up, the best thing to do is get on that bike. I think um, there's something in what you said about having a screen, but a screen that's dedicated for a different purpose. It doesn't do everything. You can't be on WhatsApp at the same time. That's, that's very true. And uh, the content that's streamed on that screen is also very relevant. Okay, if I ask someone that is close to you about your phone use, 
What do you reckon they would say? Probably say that I do use it a lot. WhatsApp, if they send me a WhatsApp, I'm responding to my WhatsApp messages far too frequently. <laughs> so they, they say that you're too quick to respond. <laughs> I just feel that I've, I've um, WhatsApp is my new challenge. It's sort of taken over from email, mm. WhatsApp a bit, and I, and, but the problem is you tend to send more messages on WhatsApp than you would in an email. Something that's not appropriate to send an email, you might send on a WhatsApp. Mm. And I love how it's connected me with people. It's, it's, it's very clever, but I'm a little bit too linked into it right now. It's your weakest link at the moment. <laughs> it's my weakest link. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thanks for playing along. I, I want to obviously get into your film. So your film, I Am Gen Z, it's about this new generation and their relationship with technology, or to use your words, how this generation is surviving in a world broken by technology. So first of all, just to define what Gen Z is, people that are born between 1997 and 2015 is what I read. I think um, uh, it's not truly defined at the younger end of the uh, spectrum. So I think Gen Z really relates to today's teenagers and those in their early 20s. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Time will tell um, when they want to uh, call the next generation, uh, whatever they're going to call it, um, Generation Alpha or, or whatever. But mm. I, that's what, what the film studies is, teenagers and uh, early 20s. So you've got a set of people who are just starting to go into the workplace now and also those who are teenagers at school doing exams, reaching puberty. That's the group I'm looking at. So what inspired you to make this film? What's the backstory? My backstory is when I was a Gen Z, so when I was about 25, the equivalent, when I was the equivalent of Gen Z at the sure. high end of the scale age, about 25, I went to work for a Californian startup, a Silicon Valley startup, and that startup was called Yahoo which people of your and my generations will know was one of the internet success stories, which subsequently died and crashed. But uh, in the internet bubble days, it was the big player. That was the most extraordinary, amazing experience. And I still have a lot of friends today from that group. It really felt that we were creating something revolutionary, something completely new, something democratizing, something that was going to change the world in a positive way. And then 20 years on, I, from that experience, I'm working in filmmaking, I'm working in documentary, and I'm looking back at what we've created and asking the question of, have we created a, a Frankenstein monster here? Yeah, I know that the intentions were good in the early days. The founders of those internet companies, they had good intentions, and yet it got twisted. And there are lots of unintended consequences. So that was where I started. But it's a massive subject, mm. as we all know. And then sort of I needed to cut it down, focus it down. And as I started reading about how it was impacting that younger generation, the first generation with uh, digital mobile technology in their lives, that then became the focus of, mm. of the film. Right. And then in that exploration of Gen Z, 
How would you describe the primary way in which that generation is different from the previous one? They're very aware of what's going on in most scenarios in terms of the addictiveness of technology, in terms of some of the issues around social media. They're, they're totally aware of it. And they have accepted that they have to deal with it and that this is their life. And so how am I going to, how am I going to manage this? And they've got this great sort of self-deprecating humor. I don't know whether you've picked up on that. And sometimes they will joke about themselves and how they aren't coping with it or how they are dealing with it, which shows a sort of self-awareness that I don't think we had, older generations perhaps had about their situation. I think we were a bit more naive and optimistic about it all. 100%. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, that's a really good way of explaining it. And some of the studies have shown this and, and people, the experts talk about this in my film, is that there are some key characteristics of this generation which are about kindness and fairness. Every teenager tends to have had those values and as we get older we get a little bit more cynical and a little bit... Um, less than the kindness, fairness, sort of honesty uh, kind of values. But I think for this generation, it's more entrenched in them and in their, in their beliefs. Whereas certainly my generation, and I'm Gen X, I'm hardcore Gen X, I grew up in the, the Thatcher-Reagan 80s, very capitalist kind of era, which was very individualistic, And I think Gen Z have become more community-driven, more caring uh, as a group. They're also, you know, they have to deal with lots of division in a way that we didn't have to deal with division. But when they find their tribe, they're very loyal and close and supportive of their tribes in a way that I think perhaps the older generations were a little bit more individually minded. Hmm, That's really interesting. So when I was watching the film, I think my starting point was to feel a bit sorry for these kids that they've been dealt a bad hand. But watching it, I realized actually they have a lot of strengths. And so by the end, I was admiring a lot of their attitudes and wondering, what can I learn from them? Absolutely. Yeah. They, um, I think if older generations can adopt some of the values of Gen Z, you know, the, the kindness, the fairness and stuff, I think we can remove some of this toxic sort of division and polarization that, that's going on. Mm. And they are more activists as well, less willing to sit back and let stuff happen. I, I think it really comes through with the, the whole climate change story. You know, they're really passionate about that. They're also passionate about Black Lives Matters and inequality, uh, all of that. I mean, a lot of people are quite sceptical about the whole generational labels. You're saying it's just a marketing gimmick or perhaps that the differences are being exaggerated. And of course, it is a bit arbitrary to draw a line and say, if you're born after this one particular day, you're going to be different. But if you look at the big picture, would you say that there's been a real shift? I think there's been a seismic shift okay. between our generations, yours and mine, and them. And 
I think it's been a generation leap rather than a generation gap. So I think the Gen Z parents really struggle to understand what life is like uh, as a young person today because their life is completely and utterly different to the ones that certainly the Gen Xs grew up with and the boomers. Mm. And I had a few comments when I was making the film. It's interesting when I was talking to parents about I'm making this film, that's the stuff. Oh, yeah, but my kid's not like that. And then they'd say, what's TikTok? What do you mean? What's that TikTok thing? Well, <laughs> it's probably on TikTok, right? Yeah. And they might then discover, oh, yeah, the kid was on TikTok. And they'd never been on it. And until you spend time on TikTok, you don't really understand w- what it's like to be a teenager. Mm. days or Instagram or whatever the next thing's going to be and I spent a lot of time on TikTok researching for the film and it was an eye-opener one because they were in TikTok in particular because they are creating their own videos they're talking through their own language and so they are telling me a lot about what's important to them in their lives and the things that make them tick. So you start to get a a little insight into them. But also this feed, this For You page, this constant feed of uh, content that's coming through and you're just like, wow, if I had to live with that when I was their age, I think I, I wouldn't have been able to cope. And I think a lot of them have learned, because they don't know any different, they, they just live with it. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, when you watch this film, it comes through that there's a whole new playbook in terms of how people are relating to each other in the digital world, these new dynamics, and they can be seen on social media platforms. And um, last time we spoke, you mentioned you know, perfectionism, social cooling. Can you tell us more about some of these kinds of phenomena? Yeah, the one of the things that I uncovered during the making of the film that I hadn't appreciated before I started was this rise of perfectionism in young people. And that's coming from a lot of places. It goes back beyond before mobile digital technology. I think there was already in certain Western democracies, um, Western culture, that rise of perfectionism was already on, on, on its way up, so to speak. But I think what mobile technology and social media has gone and done is it's exacerbated it. It's put it into um, sort of hyper mode, because of the constant comparison, the constant posting, the constant got to show that I'm doing something. This is where I'm at. I'm, I'm improving on that. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. It's, it's, it's huge. And so that was an eye-opener to me. The other one you mentioned is social cooling. Now, this is really interesting. So one of the biggest, the most pernicious things I think about digital technology is this constantly being tracked, the loss of privacy. And it's just getting worse all the time, off the scale now. And it seems hard to imagine that we're ever going to be able to pull it back where we're not constantly being watched, whether it's facial recognition, whether it's being tracked on our phones with what we're doing, where we're going, our likes, our preferences, and AI and algorithms are only making that better and better and better all the time. And we're feeding it because we keep giving it information, so we're, we're improving all of that. And one of the things, if you're being constantly watched, that has to have a direct impact on your behavior as a human being. 
If you're constantly being watched, you're always going to be checking your behavior. There's this um, 18th century philosopher, uh, I think it's Jeremy Bentham, I think it is, who came up with the concept of the panopticon. Yes, right. Yeah, yes. it was used in prisons. Exactly. I, the concept was that you had um, you, you built the prison around this circular building, which only needed one guard in it because you could look into, that guard could be looking into anyone's prison cell at any one time. So you didn't know, you as the prisoner couldn't see uh, the guard, but you knew that it was possible that the guard could be watching you at any moment in time. And so in a way, it's the panopticon effect. And mm. when you are constantly being watched and you think that you could always be being watched, you check your behavior and you have this thing called social cooling. So you don't perhaps, you know, express yourself in the way that you might if you're in an environment where no one's going to, you know, where it's not recorded, where it can't come back to bite you. And I think if you're constantly holding back, that's not ultimately a good thing. You have less fun. And one of the people in the film, one of the experts in the film, talks about the fact two of them say, look, I've noticed that teenagers these days are having a lot less fun. And I think that's because of the social cooling effect. One of the big themes in the film is privacy. And I wondered, what is it that worries you the most? You look at what's happened in Hong Kong and the democracy protests which have failed. And... A lot of that has been because of the power that the Chinese Communist Party have had of simply being able to monitor people through their phones and all of the associated things to do with that and facial recognition and all that kind of stuff. So it becomes so dangerous to protest or speak out or even post something on Twitter or wherever uh, that you don't do it. And then when you no longer feel that you can express yourself freely, that is the biggest danger to a well-functioning society, in my opinion. Sure, the autocratic nations are doing it perhaps more overtly, but even in small ways, it's coming into our lives here in the UK. You look at what's happened now with COVID and the track and trace apps, and yes, it's for the public health and the public good, and there's perhaps a very good argument for it, but All of our health data is now, that worries me how much of mm. our health data is now out there and how that's being used. And I know there are these checks and balances in place, but I don't think there's perhaps enough of that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess situations like this shake things up. And then once you have these new systems in place, these new norms, then it's hard to reverse them <laughs> to, to argue for for rights and responsibilities around privacy when we've already agreed to this level of you know, intrusion, I suppose. This is the biggest problem with the direction digital technology has gone in. I don't see that they were, we're ever going to go back. The genie's out of the bottle and it's only just going to build and build and build. So we need to try and make sure that we get it right first time round. But sometimes we don't realize the unintended consequences or the long-term implications of some mm. of the things we do, and then it's really hard to go back. Is this something that you found Gen Zers are typically worried about? 
no. And this is my one of the things that surprised me the most. So there's a big element in the film about privacy and loss of privacy and surveillance. And whenever I've spoken to uh, Gen Zers about about the film and stuff, they really relate to most aspects of the film, the mental health aspects of it, um, you know, the addiction side of things, the challenges that lie ahead with them. But they never quite get the privacy piece. And I suddenly realised, ah, I know why. It's because they've never experienced it. They don't really know what it is, right? If you've never known, if your photograph of you um, when you were five hours old went, went up on Facebook, so from the minute you were born, you didn't have privacy, right? You were out there mm. in, um, in, for the world to see. And that was the beginning of your, your internet brand, right? There's this whole kind of branding thing we have to do uh, at a personal level now, you know, when you're, when you're online, social media. It starts right from the very beginning. I've gone off on a tangent again there, but that's another interesting uh, angle, I think. But mm. yes, coming back to the, the privacy thing, um, if you've never experienced it, I don't think you can truly understand what you've lost. But then there's an acceptance. There's a great line in the film. A couple of characters said, you know, well, sure, facial recognition and um, tracking technology, it's here. It's here to stay. So we've got to live with it. So they're aware of it, but they mm. accept this is how it is. It's just how it is. Okay, so taking this back to the individual level, and what individuals can do. What do you think technology is doing to people's freedom to think, feel, act in alignment with their own values and purpose? And what advice, if any, would you have to, to those that are struggling to do that? Okay, freedom to think, act uh, in alignment with their own purpose. There's the soundbite snacking issue that you get with social media, news feeds, notifications. Could you just explain that, the soundbite snacking issue? Yeah. So we just grab the headlines. It's the, it's the, the tweet culture. So we make a whole load of assumptions based on 144 characters or how many, char- how many characters is it these days? I think it's 280, but yeah, still really short. So... And often we don't go deeper than that. And so you grab a headline and then you share it with your friends and all of a sudden (laughs) something's got completely misconstrued because you haven't gone in depth and actually understood the full story. And the system, you know, the driving forces behind technology and the technology companies and the media companies is they want you to share, 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 share quickly, 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 you know, activity. So they are designed to be little sound bites that are going to make you want to share them quickly. And they're not necessarily um, correct or you haven't understood the full complexity of what's underneath that statement. So the ease with which you can share little bits of effectively what becomes misinformation or misconstrued information, the ease with which you can do that is one of the um, biggest dangers of technology in the way it's gone. And so a tip relating to that is I actually will search out the long reads in the newspapers 
awe in the podcast. This is why I said earlier I love podcasts because mm. it's a great format. Um, and for some reason, people will sit and listen to a 60-minute podcast, but then on the rest of the time we're flicking around these little tweets and Twitters or whatever. Um, but it's a great format, that, because you really can go in-depth on stories. Or if you're reading the newspaper, read the, the long read, the one that the journalist has actually spent years studying and going into depth or the expert really knows a lot about. So be really intentional about what you're reading, what news you're reading, what information you're reading, um, and be very aware of that. So it's okay to go through Twitter and see some cool tweets and stuff, but before you share it, make sure you've really understood where that tweet's come from. Um, and then make sure that you are spending time to dig deeper into the subjects that you're interested in before you just start espousing off and saying, it's like this, it's like that. I read it on, you know, Facebook. I can definitely relate to that. Some newspapers like The Guardian are releasing their long form articles as podcasts, which I listen to. So that makes it a bit easier for me. Clearly, we're all struggling with this. Exactly, exactly. And I do sometimes stray into like um, uh, when I'm listening to podcasts, I'll then sometimes find myself straying into, I'm just going to check something, check um, that text that pinged through or whatever. Yes. And then you realise, I just didn't listen to the last five minutes of that podcast. It was kind of a nice sort of calming sound in the background, but I couldn't tell you what they just said. And then I find myself having to go back and rewind. And, and I think that's a skill we're losing mm. by not practising it. What do you think, Liz, is really at stake here? Like if we just snack, and I've heard it uh, described elsewhere as the high-calorie, low-nutrition diet of information, if that's what we mostly live on, how is that going to impact us over time? So it's affecting our ability to um, do deep thinking. Mm. So I think with the younger generations actually learning the skill of deep thinking, of being able to sit down and, and read uh, a long article or listen to a long podcast and not be distracted and really think about what you've just heard and, and process it, that's a skill. So if you're constantly task switching and multi-screening and 500 notifications all going on at the same time, you cannot sit down and learn that skill. Mm. And then older generations we perhaps have that skill because we were in an environment where we learnt it, but it's our responsibility to make sure we're applying it and we're not drawn in by the instant gratification, snacking kind of thing. Yeah. The other way it's impacting our ability to do the deep thinking is the noise. There's so much noise out there right mm. now. And how do you declutter away from all of that noise requires discipline and it requires you to actually carve out some time and say, I am now going to spend some time really studying something in depth and I'm going to put my phone onto airplane mode and I'm, you know, just going to find a space where I can do that without the distractions. I was talking to my cousin the other day about how her two teenage daughters use social media and she basically said that they take a lot of self-responsibility around it, knowing that they find it difficult to resist the notifications uh, and they find it difficult to, to not know what all their friends are up to at any given moment. If they need to do something that requires concentration, they'll give their phone to their mom saying, can you keep this for one hour? Because I just need to do this thing and I just need a bit of space. 
And I thought that was amazing. I mean, that's just so sophisticated. That's exactly what I mean about them being self-aware. They're mm. aware that this phone is pulling them in all the time. They're aware of that tension, which I think is really impressive. Yeah. But it's not easy. Yeah. It's really not easy to fight it. Liz, we're going to be out of time soon. So before you go, I want to ask you to pick a card from the digital habit cards that I sent you before. So these are effectively experiments, suggestions for experiments that you can do to improve your relationship with tech. And when you looked at them, was there one that sparked your interest, one that you'd actually like to try out? So the one that jumped out at me was the very first one, which is avoid early morning tech use. And I have been doing that, but not quite to a full degree. So what I have is this habit now of the first thing I do in the morning whilst I'm having my breakfast is I actually read a book, a physical book. Yeah, back to this deep thinking and having time to read sort of stuff in depth. And that really sets me up well for the day. And then once I've had that period of time, I then go to my desk and start my day. But there's one thing I'm missing, I'm not doing. And that is before I start reading my book, and sometimes it might only be for 10 minutes because I've only got 10 minutes because I've got a really long day, but I'm doing that reading time. But before I do that reading, I quickly check my phone to see, is there anything urgent? Even if it's something that is not urgent, it's now in in the back of my mind that, oh, I have to deal with that thing. And wouldn't it be nice if actually I didn't look at my phone until I start my day at my desk? So I'm going to try doing that. Yeah, it's funny how it can feel quite luxurious to be offline for a little while. Absolutely. I mean, it's my job is, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I need to be reading stuff and learning stuff that that plays into the films. So it's work, but I still feel like a bit naughty doing this thing which is perceived as a luxury but actually shouldn't be perceived as a luxury and and yeah you know all of these things that are pulling you into each day oh I should be responding to this person I should be outputting I should be producing something all day all the time yeah. could you say something about where people can learn more about you follow you connect with you Oh, yes. So if you're interested in the film, imgenzfilm.com. There's a page there which is for screenings. And so we are doing the festival run at the moment. Oh, and also worth mentioning my other projects, What's Going On Your Head. That's whatsgoingonyourhead.org. So again, head over to that website to find out more about that. Brilliant. We will be following you very closely. Thanks for all your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. After speaking to Liz, I've been thinking more about Gen Z, their values and activism, the social cooling effect, and the challenges to deep thinking. And I realized that how young people engage with tech shapes culture, shapes the world, and affects us all. So a big thanks to Liz Smith for sharing her insights. I highly recommend checking out her film to learn more. All the links will be in the show notes over at mindovertech.com. And of course, thanks to you for listening. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please consider leaving us a review because that makes a big difference to how easily others can find us. 
And finally, we have a great newsletter which you might find useful. So feel free to sign up. It's full of ideas and inspiration and practical tips too for experimenting with your digital habits. I hope you can join us again next time. Bye for now.